0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Conversations on Conversations, where each week we explore a topic to help us have more powerful conversations with ourselves and others. I'm your host, Sarah Nill Wilson, and joining me today are two people who don't know yet how they've changed my life, Dr. Sally Winston and Dr. Martin Seif. And we're going to be talking about the topic of OCD, um, how it's misunderstood, how we can support ourselves if we're navigating it, how we can support others. And if you've been following me on social media, I shared a post recently about my own journey with OCD. So this is a particularly special episode. So let's get into and let me share their bios and then we'll bring them on. So Dr. Sally Winston is the founder and executive director of the Anxiety and Stress Disorder Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. She is a master clinician who has given sought after national workshops for therapists for decades. She is a frequent guest on podcasts and webinars. She received the prestigious Geraldine Ross Award of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America in 2011, her blog, Living with a Sticky Mind which I love that title can be found at psychologytoday.com. Born in Montreal, Canada, she has three adult daughters, two granddaughters and I don't know how to pronounce the parrot. How do you pronounce a the Senegalese parrot? Senegalese parrot. <laughs> Okay. I have so many questions, but I know we have a tight time, so that might have to come afterwards. All right. And Dr. Martin Seath is a master clinician who has spent the last 35 years developing innovative and highly successful treatment methods for anxiety disorders, including panic disorder, agoraphobia, specific phobia, social anxiety disorder, and obsessive compulsive disorder. He is on the faculty of New York Presbyterian Hospital, former associate director of the anxiety and phobia treatment center at White Plains Hospital a founder of Anxiety and Depression Association of America, and in pra- private practice at Greenwich, Connecticut. Together, they have co-authored four books, which I highly recommend if you're interested. Check them out, buy them. Um, two of them for sure that I've read have changed, really changed my life. What Every Therapist Needs to Know About Anxiety Disorder, Overcoming Unwanted Intrusive Thoughts, Needing to Know for Sure, and Overcoming Anticipatory Anxiety. Welcome to the show, both of you.
1: Nice to
2: be here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: What else, you know, we can start with you, Dr. Winston. What else would you want our audience to know about you?
1: Um,
2: That's plenty.
0: Yeah. (laughs) 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 And what about you, Dr. Seif?
2: Um, Know about me? I am an avid bicyclist. I spend most of my I spend a lot of time cycling. I cycle thousands of miles a year, and I've cycled all over the year, all over the world, rather. And um, yeah, yes, and uh, climbed mountains and done things that I shouldn't have done. And the second thing about me is that <laughs> I have, within the last year or two, got into wood turning on a lathe and making bowls and nice. boxes and things like that. So um, those are two kind of uh, interesting, uh, passions that I have.
0: I love it. Have you, so have you ridden Ragbri? the, you know, the great ride across the state of Iowa? That's no, but I know a lot bike. of
2: people who've done that. I mean, basically it's summer, it's hot. It's, uh, yeah. you know, I know the story. Have you, it sounds like either you've done it or you know, people who've done it. In some
0: way. I mean, I live in Iowa. No, I don't oh, do okay. it. I think okay. they're crazy. Like, but no. more power to them, but well, I know
2: people who've done it when the temperatures were a hundred degrees and sometimes, anyway, so yeah. Uh, yes.
0: yeah no. Awesome. Well, I I'm, I'm so excited to to have uh, have you both on the show for us to talk about this. and so let's just start with help help us understand what is OCD and how because that was one thing, I'll just start with this. I never saw that as an option for what I was struggling with because I feel like I my understanding of OCD was very limited to thinking about people who just wanted things to be very particular or that the compulsions um, were about you know, not wanting to step on cracks or wanting to and not realizing the depth of how it can show up, the depth mm-hmm. of how compulsions can be very internal. And once, once my therapist and I kind of made this aha of, oh, this is more than just panic disorder. Uh, there's something else going on here. And the more I started to learn about it, it really opened my eyes to uh, not only understanding myself better but also just being more tuned into the amount of suffering Mm -hmm. that people with OCD experience because it's not just that it's I think a lot of people they go oh I like to be clean I have OCD I'm like no you don't do you Mm -hmm. have a lot of distress do you have intrusive thoughts do you Mm -hmm. so so yeah so why don't you start us off Dr. Winston
1: well, first of all, kudos to your therapist, because mm. an awful lot of therapists would not have picked that up. Um, it isn't just the general public that have misconceptions about OCD. It's also general therapists, Yeah. which is one of the reasons why we started writing, is that we wanted to make a dent in the world. And also why we didn't use the term OCD in the titles of our books, yeah. because we thought that... You know, people would pick them up who didn't know they had OCD and then learn through reading that they, in fact, do. And, it, you know, for a long time, people did think that OCD was repetitive thoughts. Those were the obsessions and compulsions were defined as behavioral things that you do, like checking and washing and avoiding contamination and things like that. Um, And and there was also this idea of a personality trait of being very um, neat and organized and so on. Uh, And I I think what you're saying is so important because, first of all, compulsions are not only behavioral, they're also mental Mm. and covert and things that are not obvious either to the person who's having them or to people around them. And so it's much more subtle. I have
0: to, it's it's interesting to hear your intentionality behind the title, because I didn't come to your work by looking for OCD. I came to your work because I started to experience incredibly intrusive thoughts in a way I never had before. Mm-hmm. And that is actually what brought me, and it was your work that made me realize, I think this is actually what's going well, on. Well,
2: people, people get frightened because they think that... Uh, when they have unwanted intrusive thoughts, they think that they're somehow either fighting um, impulses or they're yeah. fighting an intentionality in some way. And so there's there's no real recognition that this is an, an anxiety disorder or a, a form of OCD in some way. Um, so that's another that's another reason why we really didn't use the term obsessive uh, OCD in the book. Another thing I just want to say is that um, therapists, you know, therapists still do not, there are many, many therapists who still do not understand obsessive compulsive disorder. And Sally and I, um, I think we sort of stopped when COVID came, but we gave really well-received lectures at, at large things, uh, essentially two therapists, which were entitled Busting the, you know, the Myths everything you learned about obsessive compulsive disorder in graduate school is probably wrong. And people Mm. were fascinated by that and interested in some way. But still, there are a lot of people who have difficulty with that. And I think that's one of the reasons that we appreciate you getting the word out to people and why we enjoy the fact that people are willing to spread the word around our books.
0: What, you know, what do you feel like, Why does the misunderstanding or or myths about it? Do you feel like it's so pervasive? Because that was something that even my therapist and I talked about. I think she had a moment of, I missed this. I, I, you know, I had I had little signs of it, but then it was like it wasn't. Honestly, it wasn't until I started to connect the dots that she started to connect the dots differently. And then it was like, oh shoot, like I totally missed this. What is it about? OCD in particular, that feels that is so misunderstood compared to say like anxiety, or you have a panic attack or depression, Um, you know, what, I just I'm curious to hear your thoughts on why that's so pervasively misunderstood.
1: Some of it is just that, that it's the the understanding of OCD the way we understand it now is just in the last, maybe 30 years, before that, really, the understanding, panic disorder didn't even show up in the manual the DSM until 1980. And obsessive compulsive disorder was understood through psychodynamic lens or a a Freudian or or um, a a different way of looking at it as if um, thoughts that one might have all are meaningful and worthwhile and should be explored and are insights into your deep unconscious (laughs) and that that You know, the notion that we all have junk in our minds that's not worth paying attention to was not really, uh, you know, available for the training of most people who are therapists. And we're gradually making inroads um, into, you know, into the therapy community. But there are many people who train according to some school or um Sort of way of understanding the mind, or or a, f- a particular theoretical orientation, or a bunch of technical interventions, and they just mm. don't run across the need to understand OCD. So, you know, well, it's actually far more prevalent than it than we thought. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, and let me add to that to, to some extent. There is really a uh, a a well-established um, Long-term analytic conception, which goes somewhere to the sense that the wish is father to the fear, and so essentially, mm-hmm. if a person fears something, there's an analytic uh, assumption that there's some uh, that's some response to a wish, and I think there's some validity to that in certain cases. The fact is that there are things that that need to be explored, but if we also include the fact that what if we go on what Sally's saying, that the the mind does create these junk thoughts, and that there's certain thoughts that we that we need to take seriously, and other thoughts that we need to bake to say no. That's just junky, you know. Pass, let it pass by. Just like when you get a creative idea, sometimes you get a creative idea and you say, "Wow, that's yeah. really great." And other times yeah. you say, "That sucks. Leave that alone." In some way, that's just <laughs> the way our mind works—an understanding of our mind. So the fact is that there are a lot of people, a lot of therapists still who go along with this old general. I'm giving a very general term: analytic assumption in some way. And I don't know, I'm sure Sally has the same thing. I have people coming up to me who are in therapy who like their therapist who have intrusive thoughts tell me their intrusive thoughts and say is it all right do you think for me to tell my therapist that i have these intrusive thoughts <laughs> in some way wow. and you say of course yeah of course yeah. you, you got to do that in some way i'm sure you've had that experience shall i haven't you yeah
1: yeah of course all the time and i think that the, the main misconception that that generates the shame and the misery and the secrecy around these thoughts is that. Everybody has passing intrusive thoughts, certainly, but certain of those thoughts, if you have a sticky mind or OCD, certain of those thoughts get stuck and repeat. And the reason that those thoughts get stuck and repeat are, is not random. It's yeah. the most awful thoughts that you can come up with. It's the things that are the opposite of you. It's the anathema, the, oh, my God, what's that doing in my mind kinds of thoughts. And as soon as you seize on one of those passing thoughts, it's no longer random. It's because you hate it so much that it gets stuck. It gets yeah. stuck by the effort to get rid of it.
2: And so and as by a result the, of that, the I just... Over it. I yeah. just want to add. Uh, I'm just completing what you're saying. As a result of that, the content of unwanted intrusive thoughts is usually pretty awful, pretty terrible. So, the, so a yeah. person says, "Wait a second. If I'm thinking about some awful thing, if I'm thinking about hurting people or abusing people or yelling out um, some blasphemy while I'm in while I'm in church or." If, if that's what I'm thinking about and it, and it frightens me so much, like it feels like an impulse, what sort of person am I? So there's a desire yes. to hide it, to keep it inside yourself because, Oh my God, what, what's, what's it going to find? It's sort of like, let's, let's keep the, the uh, box closed. Let's not open uh, the, uh, the, let's not open it up in some way so you see the dilemma that the these people are in so so the first thing you have to think of is how courageous people are to be Mm -hmm. able to talk about it and i think a lot of this started coming out because there was the opportunity to do things online to do things with some sort of i have this as a matter of fact i have a personal website Uh, this this is sort of the background to the book that we wrote uh, overcoming unwanted intrusive thoughts i have a personal website which you know years ago you know maybe in you know 10 12 years ago people were you know websites were getting 30 40 50 hits a day in some way and i had a one little page associated that would that described very briefly i think i called them uh intru- obsessive intrusive thoughts or something like that and you know, Google Analytics, all of a sudden I was getting 100, 200, 300, 500, 1,000 hits a day, you know, and so this is, this. Is, I couldn't understand it. And I realized eventually that, as I tell, either there was, they were all landing on one page. Most of them were landing on one Got page. It. So, so yeah. either yeah. this was something that was really common out there and people were finding it, or else there were one or two people who were just spending their whole day clicking yeah. on that one thing. <laughs> Which, and I mean, not- like, could be because we're looking for reassurance <laughs> yeah, and we're just like, right. let me read it again yeah. and is that right. what I really have? And-
1: <laughs> well, that's why we wrote the book, because that was a huge gap in general information, yeah. is, is that.
2: And and as we were writing the book, we learned more and more about it. And as we get questions from people, and for a while, actually, I had a little newsletter that I tried to go up each month, and people would people would read it and, and subscribe. And I think we had I don't remember maybe five or six or seven thousand people. This is in two thousand and fourteen subscribing to this intrusive thoughts newsletter in in some way. Um, and th- that a lot of that information went into the into uh, the book that we wrote. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's. I think I think that was something that was so profound for me. I mean, there were so many major ahas, but I I have experienced intrusive thoughts before. All humans do, and I've actually I realized that I've had times when what maybe was diagnosed with like as panic disorder. Actually, when I look back, I'm like. Oh no that was actually like repetitive intrusive thinking and mm. and i was trying to explain it to somebody i was like this isn't like one or two thoughts a day when my brain is really really sticky because i'm under stress because i'm tired because i'm not right like practicing my ability to sit with the uncertainty and float and fly above it um, it can be hundreds thousands a day of that Mm -hmm. coming through and and imagine you're trying to exist in the world and and to your point about those subtypes types i think that like again that was another piece that was really insightful for me because imagine that your intrusive thoughts Wasn't about cleanliness, but was about pedophilia. What if your intrusive thoughts were about harming children? What if your intrusive thoughts were about um, sexual orientation and how so many of those one would feel very scary to share out loud and two could be misinterpreted by somebody who isn't familiar with OCD as like, ooh, you might actually have a real problem or you might actually really need to be rethinking or you really need to explore this. That was so profound. And I will Mm -hmm. say that in my own journey, I can't imagine how many people are walking around not realizing that this is what they're suffering with Mm and not having the support and not having the space, right, like to be able to speak up, and which is why I think it's so easy for it to be silent, because there's so much shame around these thoughts.
1: Right? And what we say all the time is that OCG masquerades as issues. Right? So that if somebody if you, even if you are a, a mental health clinician, if you ask somebody, do you have suicidal thoughts? Somebody could 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 say, yes, they do. And there's two different kinds of suicidal thoughts. One of them is, I wanna die. My life sucks. Nobody cares about me. They'll all be better off without me, kind of suicidality. That's real suicidality. But OCD also does something else. If we remember that the opposite of you is what gets stuck. People who love life can be tortured by the thoughts that what if against my will, I suddenly lost control and jumped off a balcony or knifed myself or hung myself because these thoughts are in my mind. That's not being suicidal. It's not being depressed. And yet, if uh, if you just answer yes to that question, you can end up hospitalized yeah. or you can end up very scared to ever say those thoughts to anybody because of the consequences. Your family's gonna get all upset about you and all these other things. So those details about the thoughts are very, very important. Yeah, And they can be so easily misunderstood. Yeah. Another
2: way of saying that is, is that obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, can masquerade as many, many different factors. Sally was giving an example where it can masquerade as depression in some way. Um, and, it, it, and, and we make a distinction between, between something like depression, where a person is depressed, and obsessive compulsive disorder, where the content of the obsessions are depressing in some way. So sure, that's sure. another thing that we say, you know, um, mm-hmm. an intrusive thought. You know, you, you I think I, you made a really good point. We made a special effort. To start the book with very specific examples of different types Mm -hmm. of intrusive thoughts, because we Mm. wanted people to see the nitty gritty Mm. of that. By the way, some people find that too triggering, and they can't continue on the book. But I think that it's still an (laughs) you 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 found it triggering (laughs) in the beginning.
0: In the beginning, I found it really triggering. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, and now I'm in a very different place for sure. Yeah, but in a
2: sense. But you know it it's it again let's talk about um the courage that people need in order to overcome mm-hmm. this. I mean it really means mm. taking a chance you know, you're, it's, a, it's a leap of faith in some way that somehow the approach that's being presented by people who wrote this book is going to be helpful when, in fact, it's completely opposite to the way that I've been trying to deal with it in the past <laughs> right, right, in some way. Right. But, but we did want people to know the nitty gritty where really good people can have terrible, terrible, terrible thoughts in some way and and to understand that a sense. But but to go yeah. to take a, just one step further, and we a, a, an unwanted intrusive thought is not defined by its content, okay? And that's and that's an essential thing. It's really defined mm-hmm. by how it feels feels terrible, and how it acts. It it repeats. It repeats. Yeah. It gets stuck. It's a it's a it's a. <laughs> so that's that's the way we define an unwanted intrusive thought.
1: Another another thing about how it acts is that what is maintaining and the repetition of the thought is the struggle against the thought. So (laughs) the thought has a relationship with whatever you're trying to do to make it go away. And that can be something like a behavioral compulsion, tap three times and turn around, maybe the thought will go away. Or it can be a mental compulsion, maybe you'll say a certain word several times, or you'll try to reassure yourself that it's not true, or some other kind of effort that you're making to try to get rid of the thought or, and get rid of the feelings that come with the thought. And that relationship between the thought, which is called an obsession, and the thing you're doing to try and make it go away, that's called a compulsion. Yeah. And for many people, obs- they just call it obsessing or worrying. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're going to get better, you got to parse that out and figure out some of it makes you feel anxious, some of it temporarily makes you feel better. And it goes round and round and
0: round yeah okay so that's such a beautiful uh introduction to the concept of the three minds that you talk about in your book which i i laughed so hard when i was learning about the false comfort mind i'm like i have a very strong false comfort mind so (laughs) dr Seif, would you start us off by talking about that the way that you talk about it in your books of the worried mind the false comfort mind and then the wise mind because for me even i was like i think everyone should just be familiar with that regardless of what they might be challenged with or struggling with um, because it was such a it was just such a powerful visualization, <laughs> but the false comfort mind was like, yep, yep, I see what she's doing.
2: Well, actually, we had a lot of fun with that when we were trying to write it and trying to figure out what to call the names. But the the real the, it started with the fact that we wanted to find a very explicit way of illustrating the conversations, the dialogue, the narrative that goes on in people's minds in some way. It really followed from the idea when we realized that really most of obsessive compulsive disorder is purely mental and purely cognitive and goes on within people's mind and that's why we considered it to be why people start to realize that it's far more common than uh than uh, professionals had assumed prior to that so we wanted to make this internal conversation very very explicit and um we we decided we would just sort of take uh various characters and have them play out the interplay that goes on between people's <laughs> yeah. minds. Now, the, the one of them is worried voice, which we originally wanted to call it. That's the that's the obsession. That's the that's the part that triggers anxiety. Originally, we wanted it to be called something with an O. I re- remember that. originally. Oliver. Oliver, Oliver. <laughs>
1: no, I mean Oscar, it was Oscar. Oh, Oscar, Oscar. <laughs> kind of like Oscar the Grouch.
2: <laughs> well, no, but and then and then and then there's something that answers that, which is false comfort, which is and people can recognize this in some way. And we wanted to use the term false comfort because the comfort it, it provides is temporary um, yeah. and essentially reinforces the next wise, uh, the next. Um, uh, worried voice question. And this dialogue goes on and on. And then we wanted to introduce the fact that people, if they pay attention to themselves and center themselves, we all have some sort of common sense. We called it wise mind that says, wait a second, this is being ridiculous. You know, we're looking for absolute certainty where we're asking questions, whatever it is in some way and some way of grounding in some way. And we spent a good time going through these conversations that we hope people uh, internal conversations that we hope people could connect with. Apparently, you did. Apparently, it made sense to you. Yeah,
0: it no, it literally I mean, I felt so seen (laughs) and not crazy because I was like, what is you know, because the other component of it is that, um, what do they call it? Ego dystonic, uh, of like, for my experience there, I, I have lived with this my whole life, right? And it has manifested in lots of different ways, whether it's about health, uh, up until recently, it was about, uh, pregnancy, fear of pregnancy, even when it was irrational. Um, and, and the ways that I realized that I was like trying to, reassure my compulsions like thinking about like with my health was um, I need to figure out where I got this from I need to figure out like or or if I was really tired the joke in our house was always like, why do you, gosh, why do you think I'm so tired? And I was so, it was the ambiguity. Why, why, why? why, why? Mm -hmm. And like, and my husband so beautifully would be like, I mean, you're just tired. Like, you don't Mm -hmm. need a reason. I was like, no, but I like, am I getting sick? Am I? And then that would become the obsession. And, you know, and there've been some other manifestations um, that I'm not quite ready to you know talk about and share yet, but like, um, that but that false comfort was like was seeing it played out i was just like i was laughing at one point i was like holy shit this is my brain like they see directly into my brain of the conversations (laughs) we were actually
2: we were talking about you when we wrote this i'm sorry yeah yeah i
0: figured i was like they're like she doesn't even know that she has this yet yeah we'll be back with dr winston and dr seif in a moment Okay, so one concept that I think is so, that was so powerful was this idea of thought action fusion. And there is, I want to just read, I want to read, if I may, like a section from um, uh, Needing to Know for for Sure. Uh, And and you you wrote that there are four main perceptual changes, changes, characteristics of anxious thinking. One, that no risk feels reasonable. The thought and action feel fused together. That's the one I want to talk about worry thoughts become sticky and the world is viewed as dangerous and then you go on to say anxious thinking makes the consequences of something you fear feel so significant that the probability of that happening feels irrelevant it's so powerful and that idea of thought fusion was such a gift because what i've experienced and i know other people experience is that there's some part of your brain and i know logically it's not real. But there's some part of your brain that's like, because I've had this thought, it feels as if I'm acting out on it, which is so you know, uh, if one of you wouldn't mind talking about thought action fusion, because that was a brand new concept for me. Um, and it really opened my eyes to a lot.
1: It's really an an altered state of consciousness when you're sticky, and you're anxious your mind works a little differently. Yeah. And one of the things that we've always said, I guess everybody's always known, that anxious people have great imaginations. (laughs) Right? And what happens when you're anxious and you have this sort of imaginary catastrophic story that you build in your head that is anticipatory of some terrible thing that's going to happen, that, because you're You are anxious, it becomes incredibly vivid, and it's accompanied by body sensations of fear. And then it feels somehow you make the mistake of treating that as if it's a fact, as if it's true, as if it's something you have to now respond to or do something about. It's like going to a horror movie, you know, the Chainsaw Massacre movie, and sitting in the movie theater and then forgetting that it's a movie. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, that completely resonates for me.
2: I think that um, there were, as you were talking, Sally, there were actually a number of things that were going through our mind. I think part of it is the fact that um, we, actually Sally and I have been talking about trying to expand this concept of anxious thinking because it's so it's so profoundly different from the way we feel when we're feeling comfortable and when you're really caught up in it you yeah. really are in an alternate state of reality so we were we were playing around with the idea of I don't think we anxious consciousness is nothing really Mm. It, the, the world feels different at that, at that point. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not sure really what causes it, but it's, it's it's profound, it feels real. And it's an act of faith to say, wait a second, at some point I'm not going to be feeling this way. It's a leap of faith yeah. to do that in some way. Um, yeah. And I, I, it's I,
1: another thing also to remember that there was a time before that thought occurred to you In which this entire issue was completely irrelevant and not urgent and not doing anything and what's the matter were you being reckless and and ridiculous then that you didn't know about it yeah or or was that really you're operating the way everybody else does with a certain amount of of uncertainty that you don't care about I uh, you, you
2: yeah. used a term. I just want to get back to. It's stuck in my in my own mind. You said I have these irrational fears. I don't like to use the term irrational in a sense, because okay, yeah, when, you're in, yeah. when you're in this altered state of consciousness, they seem perfectly rational. Oh, and yeah, they, they do. Yeah. So if you can follow the internal dialogue that you're having, or as a therapist, if you can kind of communicate with the person that you're seeing and sort of point out the internal dialogue, it makes sense based on that in some way. The problem is... The original assumption is wrong in terms of that, right. but it follows that in entirely in some way. And 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 since no risk feels reasonable, and you have to avoid all risk, and you're looking for absolute certainty, you're sort of doomed from the start in some way. Um, that's that's one of the things
0: no i appreciate yeah i appreciate you pushing back on that it you know because it is sometimes it's like a a wrestle i feel like within my brain of and and part of why i'm sharing this uh, is not necessarily to get therapy but like but to to educate people on what it can feel like i mean there are times when you go i there's some part of my brain that's like i know i know what this is right and i know that i don't need to worry about it and then some days the other part of my brain's like but maybe you do yeah Mm
2: -hmm. well i think i think Part of the thing is people have to realize number one that our brain is not quite as smart as we think it is in some way. You know, we have this <laughs> we have this this sort of limbic this amygdala in the back, which is very primitive. Primitive animals have an alarm system in some way, which is binary yes or no. And then we have all this ability to think in the in the prefrontal cortex in some way. And they don't play together all that well. They don't communicate (laughs) together all that well. And I think part of what what we go through when we're feeling this intense anxiety, and I've had a lot of anxiety in my life. I can tell you that I'm speaking from experience, both on both sides, as I tell patients, both sides of the, of, of the, of the, of the office, on the couch and on, and, and on, and on the therapy chair. But, but the fact is, and part of it is that we're trying to make sense of signals that are coming in, um, that essentially don't make sense to an, another part of the brain. Um, yeah. and, and uh, i don't know that much about the neurology we try to give some explanations uh, some some very basic explanations uh, in the book about that works about how that yeah, works
0: yeah I, I actually i i really appreciate that you know my my relationship with my amygdala started <laughs> 10 years ago which is what started this well, you this said, shirt yeah. <laughs> is uh yeah we are because I, I i think everyone needs to understand about their amygdala and because we're often working with people in positions of power and authority i'm like no you need to understand that person's not being difficult they're having a stress reaction yeah and so like we're very passionate and you know and some people will joke like who's amy judala she's some singer yeah. and i'm like no <laughs> let me tell you about it but <laughs> I, I, yeah I, I, and so yeah but i loved i loved how you you in your books you talk about like there's the first fear you know, and use the example of like when somebody jumps out at you and scares you and you have that initial whoosh, which woo, that that description of whoosh felt very accurate. Like there's like, I can't describe it. But I was like, oh, yeah, that is a very accurate description. And then there's the like the second fear or not. Right. And like part of the OCD brain is it just gets looped into it. Whereas other times you go, oh, it's just a movie. Oh, it was just my friend who jumped out at me. And I want to come. I want to make sure that we give some space to that, uh, you know that that idea of certainty, right? Of just wanting like that—that that is definitely something that was so profound. And I—I I cannot say that I'm um, my muscle around that is built up as much as I. Well, no, I I know it's not built up as much as I want it to be, right? Yeah. Like I'm still having to be very conscious of it. But there's yeah, something.
1: Yeah, it's a very important concept yeah um, but the first thing to understand is that certainty isn't about facts. Yeah, that it's it's a feeling. Mm. you know the The truth is we can't be absolutely certain about anything. But there's some times when we are fine, you know, as as Marty likes to say, when he says, I'll meet you at Starbucks for a cup of coffee, he doesn't say, provided I don't have an aneurysm and die before I get there, <laughs> just doesn't think about it. And most of the time, we don't think about it. We accept the fact that we can't know for sure that 100% certainly isn't possible. And we just carry on. Because we have this feeling of certain enough or okay, or, you know, that kind of a feeling. So but when you have serious obsessional doubting, Mm -hmm. what happens is you start craving Mm. that Mm. feeling of Mm. certainty, and you think that it's going to be established with facts. Yeah, I
0: just want to be done with it. Like, just mm-hmm. what do I need to decide? What do I need to know? What do I need to read to just be done with this? Mm-hmm. And then that just perpetuates it. Yeah.
1: And the OCD loves to find itself located in anything that's invisible, right? So that could be <laughs> germs. It could be stuff in the future that hasn't happened yet. It could be what somebody else might be thinking. Yeah. Um, and but that's where you have where you can't prove something <laughs> factually that's particular OCD loves that kind of territory, because if there's no facts, then what you have is your imagination. Yeah. And, and then what you do is you rely on your imagination instead of the reality, which is that you don't know anything. Yeah. Um, There's a a wonderful little story that I stole from someone and I'm very sorry to say I don't know who I stole it from, but, but OCD takes facts and moves you along into a place where you can't be sure and it all feels very logical. So there is such a thing as termites. That's a fact. Termites eat wood. That's a fact too. Sometimes when termites are eating wood, you, you don't know about it. You can't hear them or see them. They're, they're far away. That's a fact, too. It is conceivably possible that there are termites eating the wood under the floor of your living room. That's conceivably possible. So you better not go in the living room because you could sit down on a chair, go through the floor and get and die. So that is how Mm. it traps you. Mm. And then you find yourself wanting to learn about termites (laughs) and wanting to be sure you don't have termites and calling the termite company (laughs) when all that happened was a story in your head about conceivable possibilities built on completely irrelevant facts about imaginary things. But that's how it works, and at yeah. the end, it seems like well, at least you know, call pest control and find out. Why shouldn't you? And that's how you get stuck. Yeah, With and and then for sure, the sh- for sure there are no termites. Yeah, because even last week, when right. you never thought about termites, <laughs> right, you wouldn't have cared less.
0: Oh man. And then you see where like for people listening, you can see how that false comfort comes in. Like, oh, okay, like, well they said, but it's like, oh, but they could come anytime. And mm-hmm. then you're just right back in that that loop mm-hmm. again. Yeah. I um I'm having a moment of I can't wait to talk to Nick when this is over as he's like <laughs>
2: listening to you talk and like I have now, no I'm not I'm, listening not, I'm to this. Oh, no, he is. And I'm sure you know, he's like, yeah, this, I, I, this feels about right. Let me go back in time a little bit. And we, uh, you know, Sally and I have been around for a long time. And our evolution, uh, our understanding of some of the things has changed. So if I go back to maybe before the year 2000, which is when we were probably just in our 70s or 80s. I don't remember that. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway if, I go, if I go back to, to a long time ago. And and we include some of this in our textbook. We, we wrote a little textbook, but every therapist needs to know about anxiety disorders. Talking about obsessive compulsive disorder, that when we would find someone who had anxiety that seemed weird or strange to us in some way, and we mm. we talk about it to some to another therapist, you know, say I saw this person who had this this. They would often laugh. It often brought up. Uh, laughter in some way and started. I started mm-hmm. realizing a lot of these weird phobias were really obsessive compulsive disorder, and that mm-hmm. we had to understand in some way. So people who were afraid of wind chimes or the letter S or S they lauder in some way. If you begin to understand um, what it triggers in their mind and the conversations in their mind and the 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 you know the the worried voice and the false comfort and the back and forth that goes then all of a sudden these seemingly bizarre symptoms tend to make perfect sense in some way and and yeah. the, and the issue is and and the issue is to get a person to be able to under to to pay attention to be aware of their own internal conversations their own internal dialogue and to be able to stop doing the things that maintain it in some way, to stop yeah. doing the things that reinforce it. And and in our terminology, we'd say an obsession raises anxiety, a compulsion lowers it. So your job is to allow the obsession because you try, you've been trying to stop it for a long time and not give yourself any false comfort in some way. Yeah. And that allows you to your body to begin to get better. I mean, to recover in some way. There's a whole bunch of theories about what it does, which is less important than the fact that the notion is the best thing to do when that happens is to do nothing, which is very difficult to do. It's really very
0: hard, and and sometimes. And what I've learned about, like my experiences. My brain is doing compulsions, and I don't even realize it's doing right like it is, you know, and so being able to catch it and, and and I know that there are people who are listening, um, who are tuning in because they don't have it and they want to understand it. So imagine the exhaustion of navigating intrusive thoughts, imagine the exhaustion of navigating shame. And now literally the exposure therapy response to it is to sit with that discomfort and just how exhausting that is because that was one of the things that was uh it made a ton of sense and I forget what it is but I know that like OCD is one of the top 10 most debilitating kind of diseases disorders period not just Mm -hmm. mental health but period and so understanding that which is p- also part of why I get a little frustrated when people are like, oh, I have OCD, and they say it like it's this cute thing. And I'm like, you don't understand how much distress I have to navigate mm-hmm. to just be functional, to just show up. Well, and- they're probably
2: ta- they're saying I'm OCD ish and that I'm, you know, the, the old version of I'm anal, I'm neat, I need everything to be neat in some way, which is very different than yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. About.
1: Yeah. Or it it helped me get through grad school, you know, right, right. That's not it at all. Um, But the other piece is that the, the it's, it's important to understand that dealing with OCD is not about applying a technique Mm. to make the OCD go away, Mm. that it is about changing your relationship with your thoughts. Yeah. So that your perspective on the thoughts changes, Mm. and if you do understand thought action fusion and not every thought is important and all of the details that we talk about in terms of overvaluing or over explaining or analyzing thoughts, then you can have a thought and not do anything about it pretty safely. Yeah. If you still think there's something important about that thought, it's much harder to do exposure and sit with your, maybe I'm really a pedophile that's not helpful. Yeah. What you have to do is get to the place where it doesn't really matter whether or not you have the thought because it's, it's not an important experience. And then you don't have to put in effort to apply a technique of yeah. support. That It's very important to make a distinction between um, doing something while you're having the thought because the thought doesn't matter and you can't make it go away and who cares, or doing something in order to deal with or get rid of, yeah. make yeah. that thought different. So it could be exactly the same thing. It's your attitude towards the thought that makes the difference. Your and attitude towards if- your thought,
2: your attitude towards your thought, and I'm just gonna sort of round out a bit, Sally. Your attitude towards your thought And and the effort that you use or not use to try to get rid of that thought, if we go with a very basic assumption that effort works backwards when we're dealing with anxiety, it certainly works backwards when dealing with OCD, then, and and the term we use, I don't think, I think we use a book called, it's paradoxical effort. It it actually, Mm. the effort you use to try to push the thought away goes right into making the thought stuck in some way. So the concept there is, that any effortful attempt to banish the thought to get rid of the thought to get the anxiety, tends to backfire, backfire. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, thank you for clarifying that. Because I, I mean, that's, that's the that's the muscle I'm building, right? That's not- the subtlety. Yeah, it's and it is and you don't even realize, you know, we had a guest, Dr. Tina Opie on the show a couple of weeks ago, and, and we were we were talking about bias, but she used this analogy that when she said it, Mm -hmm. I was like, that actually is a gift for my OCD brain. She said, you know, we all have biased thoughts, just think of them as a bird, let them fly by, but just don't let them nest. And it was kind of just this, like, observe it, just observe it going by. And so sometimes Mm -hmm. that is what helps me is like, Oh, yep, there. Yep, I see you. Like, Oh, you're cute. Okay, there, there you are. Right. And, 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 and some days are easier than others. And, oh. and I know from my previous experience that there, there can come a point where it becomes even easier. You know, I remember when I was, when I was dealing with my panic disorder, I had somebody come up to me and and he, he said, um, I'm pretty sure I struggle with this. How did you cure it? And I was like, Oh, sweetheart. <laughs> I said I just have a different relationship with it now. Like I've just learned how to do it. And to that point, I wanna I wanna just I wanna read a part of your book, kind of like as we're wrapping up but this idea of certainty that I it was so powerful. And and even just reading it again, I sent it to my husband. I was like, Oh, I I needed to hear this again this morning like the timing of this and and that was where you talked about recovery does not mean being certain you can and will be uncertain when you notice the realities of life there's no guarantees no perfection no foreknowledge a lot of things we can't control but recovery does mean no longer struggling with trying to control the uncontrollable, predict the future, or avoid avoid all risk. Recovery means flexibility, curiosity, excitement, growth. It means no longer being trapped in loops of reassurance. It's stepping into the uncertain world of maybe and good enough and learning how to thrive there. I just like that, just sums it up so beautifully. And there are days that that feels good, and there are days where, I'm like, damn it, I want to be in that space. <laughs> like, <laughs> how do I get there? Yeah. Um, one, I guess one final question, I'm curious, you know, I feel incredibly fortunate to have an amazing partner, uh, in this. I, you know, Nick has been learning alongside me. He is really great at holding space for it. He's learning how to make sure like, is this a productive reassurance or is this right? Like, and, and, and being able to talk very openly and courageously with him, what advice do you have for somebody who might have a family member, a friend, a spouse, a partner, a coworker? Even, what are the best ways that somebody who doesn't experience OCD could support somebody who's navigating this?
1: I think what you just said about being open to learning yeah. is, is the is the bottom line that you whatever the person who is uh, working with their own OCD is is doing reading, watching, you know, there are YouTubes, there are ways to absorb information that's accurate, Mm. alongside the person who has OCD until you really until you really grasp what's going on. And then if you are at the point where you both agree that you're not going to be giving reassurance, empty reassurance, Mm -hmm. then it has to be done kindly. Yeah. It's so easy to say, that's your OCD, just stop yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, because, yeah. But it, it has to be done kindly. Like, I can see you're suffering with that thought. Mm. Isn't that one of those thoughts? Mm. Instead mm. of um, either saying or withholding reassurance, just pointing out the process is the most helpful thing you can mm. do. Mm. Um, and understanding at a basic level that it's just OCD. Mm. You know that you, you have a sane and loving and normal person who is struggling with with OCD, which is actually once you get the diagnosis, it's really good news. Yeah, yeah. If there's a way out. It's yeah. not some kind of serious, awful thing that is going to be with them forever, and you're all going to suffer forever. You have to be optimistic because there really is a way to stop suffering.
0: Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, I can't thank you both enough. I I just I want to say thank you to you both. You know, in your decades of this work, how much suffering those of us with OCD experience. And your work gave me the light to start moving towards. It helped me understand myself. It helped me understand others. I'm still learning. I'm still working on building that muscle. But I just want you to know how incredibly valuable your work has been to me has been to people I've recommended it to how important it's been to our relationship. And so it's been such a gift to have you both on the show and to continue to share your work. So thank you both so much.
1: Thank you for having us, and I'm so glad that what we have written and talked about has been able to go all over the world. The books are actually available in, in what, about a dozen languages now? Yeah. And so the more people that we can reach and the more people like you who have the courage to share with the world, you know, what they're going through, the the better things we'll get for all those people with UCD.
0: Okay, well, we'll be sure in the show notes, folks, to to thank share you. links to the books. And yes. um, and again, thank you both so much for for being on the show.
2: And thank you. You take care. It's very very heartfelt. Thank you.
0: Our guests this week have been Dr. Sally Winston and Dr. Martin Seif. And as you can hear from our conversation, and hopefully my voice, this was a really important show for me. And I hope it's an important show for many of you. Yeah, you no, know, there's so much that I've taken away from these two, but one of the things that particularly resonated was when Doctor Winston Sally talked about how the the OCD brain really likes things that are invisible. That that. That just hit me really hard. Uh, so now I need to stop looking for termites in my life. Um, and we want to hear from you. I really do want to hear from you. If you are somebody who has struggled with intrusive thoughts, if you are somebody who knows and loves somebody who maybe has struggled with OCD and intrusive thoughts, um, or you just brought up something for you, please feel free to reach out. Know that your stories are safe with us. You can send me an email at podcast at Wilson.com. Otherwise, you can send me a DM on social media. I'm particularly busy on LinkedIn. And if you haven't already, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and your preferred podcast platform. This helps us get exposure, continue to do this great work, um, and bring on awesome guests like Dr. Winston and Dr. Seif. And if you're interested in supporting the show financially, consider becoming a patron. You can go to patreon.com slash conversations on conversations where your support will go directly to the team that makes the show possible. And you'll get some pretty great swag as well. Speaking of the team, let's give them some love. To our producer, Nick Wilson, our sound editor, Drew Knoll, our transcriptionist, Becky Reinert, and our marketing consultant, Jessica Burge, and the rest of the Snowco crew, a huge thank you. Uh, I just want to thank again our guests, Dr. Sally Winston and Dr. Martin Seath. It was an absolute honor to be able to have them on the show, to share their work, and to be in conversation with them and with you. This has been Conversations on Conversations. Thank you all so much for listening, for being present. And remember, when we can change the conversations we have with ourselves and others, we can change the world. So till next time, my friends, please be sure to rest, rehydrate, and we'll see you again soon.